and welcome to Inside Education, the podcast for educators who are interested in teaching. My name is Sean Delaney. I'm a primary teacher and a teacher educator. My book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, is available from all good libraries and bookshops, and it is now available as an audiobook. You can contact me with suggestions for or comments on the podcast by writing to Inside Education Podcast at yahoo.com. On Twitter, I use the handle at InsideEd. History of education, with special reference to curriculum change in Ireland, is a major theme on today's programme. I am delighted to be joined by Dr Thomas Walsh, who is a lecturer and deputy head of the education department at Maynooth University. Prior to holding this position, Tom worked as a primary school teacher, an education researcher in early childhood education, and as an inspector in the Department of Education and Skills. His book, Primary Education in Ireland, 1897 to 1990, Curriculum and Context, was published in 2012. You'll enjoy this week's podcast if you're interested in matters such as curriculum, early childhood education, school placement, and specifically analysing current policy and practice through the lens of history of education. When I spoke to Tom Walsh via Zoom, I first asked him to summarise the career path that has brought him to being lecturer and deputy head of the education department at Maynooth University. Indeed, um, it's been a bit of a meandering route, really, Sean. Um, I suppose I started off um, training in St. Patrick's College of Education back in the 1990s and became a primary school teacher. And I taught in a number of Dublin schools then for about five years. And then I suppose the the first transition for me was to become a development officer in what was then the Centre for Early Childhood Development and Education, the CECDE, which was also based in St. Patrick's College. And I worked there for about five years in the development of SHIELTA. And then in 2007, there was another transition. I moved to the inspectorate of the Department of Education and I became a Uh, primary district inspector. And for the next seven, seven to eight years, I largely worked in schools as an inspector, but I was also involved a little in policy development around early childhood education. And then, as you say, more recently, um, I became a lecturer in the Department of Education in in Maynooth University. And in the last year or so, I've been also the the deputy head of that department. So there's been a, a few transitions and changes along the way there. I mean, I think it's interesting what what you say there about working for the Centre for Early Childhood Education, because early childhood education, certainly over the course of my career, is one of the areas that has just transformed. And you you were just getting in around that time when it was beginning to take off. That must have been a very interesting time to be so closely involved with early childhood education. Absolutely, Sean. It was a really exciting venture. It was sponsored by the Department of Education. And our main task really was to develop a quality framework. So as you say, it was very much the sector was coming together. There'd been lots of practice and really good practice, but it was an attempt to bring together under one national umbrella, a quality framework that would apply across settings. And we had huge stakeholder buy-in. I I learned huge amounts around consultation, around negotiation in terms of developing that particular framework. Uh, What was a pity really was that after the five years of all of that research and all of that policy development, the CECDE itself became one of the first casualties of the economic downturn in 2008. I had just left to join the inspectorate at that point in time. But I think a lot of the legacy of the work of that centre still is evident within the sector. We now um, have the Ashtar Shielta practice guide. So 
I suppose the work that went into the development of Shielta still applies within that Asher Shielta practice guide and the quality assurance framework um, is still being rolled out around Shielta. It's a pity. I think there was a big delay in terms of what might have happened in different economic circumstances at that point in time. But it was a really exciting time and, and certainly many of the colleagues I worked with then and across the wider sector are still doing brilliant work in terms of the development of early childhood in Ireland. Absolutely, yeah. And what does your work then today involve as a lecturer and deputy head of the education department in Maynooth? Well, certainly no two days are the same, um, Sean. Uh, One of my nephews uh, was in touch with me a few weeks ago because he was doing a project on on careers and and asked me that question really, what what is your typical day? And, And it was impossible to answer. Probably the teaching is the most defined part of my day. So I teach a number of modules around history of education, education policy, education legislation, team teaching, and so on. So that's sort of something definite in the calendar. In in my role as deputy head, there's a lot of administration, um, a lot of interface with outside bodies and organizations also within the university. So that seems to take a lot of time and and seems to be quite undefined at the end of a day when when you spend uh, many hours doing things and you don't really see many outcomes from it. I suppose one of the, the third prong I would see though is the research dimension and while that seems to be always most squeezed within your day or within your year uh, I think that's one of the huge benefits and privileges of working in the third level system to have that opportunity to read to write to share views and and, and engage with others uh, around that so that's something I try to uh, I suppose set aside some time for um, on a on a weekly or monthly or yearly basis as well. And you mentioned there that you teach modules in the history of education. And of course, you published a book a number of years ago on primary education in Ireland from 1897 to 1990, Curriculum and Context, in which you looked at the primary school curriculum between 1897 and 1990. How did the curriculum change in that period? I suppose in some ways it changed greatly and in other ways it hardly changed at all. Um, so maybe if we're to trace, the, the, there were three big curriculum shifts during that 100-year period, really. We started off with what was would be now even considered a progressive and child-centred curriculum in 1900, greatly influenced by our membership of the, the British Empire at the time. We had lots of international influences, European influences coming in. So we had a, a very progressive, child-centred, discovery-based um, Lots of emphasis on the holistic and uh, holistic development of the child using many heuristic and and, and discovery based methods and so on. Now, it had its own problems in terms of implementation because it was very radical for the time. So that curriculum then was superseded by the a number of curriculum developments in the 1920s uh, around the advent of political independence, and it was replaced really by a curriculum that was more focused on nationalism and Catholicism. They became the twin pillars in forming the, uh, I suppose, the framework of that particular curriculum that was developed in the 1920s. So that led to a narrowing of the curriculum, maybe led to a, a different understanding of the purpose of education and the conceptualization of children changed greatly from the 1920s onwards. And as well, somewhat surprisingly, that stayed with us until the 1970s. Uh, it was a very long lasting curriculum. There were minor changes in the 30s and the 40s, but fundamentally that curriculum from the 1920s remained in place for much of the 20th century, effectively. And then we, I suppose, reverted a little bit more towards broad-based 
child-centered curriculum in the 1970s and 1971 curriculum that many listeners will be familiar with. And that has stayed in place really through 1999. Uh, and now as we move towards the redeveloped curriculum, and I, I always smile because I think we're running out of words to, to, to describe revisions. So we've had revised, redeveloped, uh, and, and so on or, over that hundred years. So in one way, there's been lots of changes. It, it, the pendulum has swung full, full circle nearly. We've, we've come back to where we were in 1900 with many changes in between. And when the curriculum was narrowed, as you said, in the 1920s and, you know, had this strong focus on nationalism and Catholicism, prior to that, the 1900 curriculum, what would have been the pillars of that curriculum? And was there a narrowing of the subjects taught or was it just more the perspective on the curriculum? The, was it just the, those, the change in those pillars? No, it, it was both. It was a change in perspective and in breadth and balance of the curriculum. So in 1900, it was largely influenced by what was called the Commission on Manual and Practical Instruction. And that was a very broad based commission that sat between 1896, 1898. It visited seven or eight countries around the world to see what they were doing around education. So there was a very huge amount of philosophical thought went into it. The new education movement around Europe was very influential at the time. Um, even the Enlightenment movement, all of those fed into this particular curriculum. So even reading it now, it, it, it talks about child well-being. All of the different buzzwords that we think are, are new uh, to us now were all there in 1900 as well. So when that was revised in the 1920s, Many of the subjects that were added in 1900 um, around manual and practical instruction, like drawing, object lessons, elementary science, all of those were removed from the curriculum at that point in time to allow a focus on, I, I suppose, one of the main aims of the education system in the 1920s was to revive the Irish language. Uh, and in order to do that, more time needed to be found within the school day to do it. So it was felt that it was an, a necessary um, a necessary evil, perhaps, um, to remove a number of those subjects in order to create the time for the focus on, on the Irish language. Not only the Irish language, but also schools were seen as the, the builders of nationhood, adding legitimacy to the state um, and to the fledgling free state, which was trying to assert itself in the world. So there was a need to, I suppose, build that identity, build that character and build that nationhood. And schools were seen as, as one of the, the key mechanisms for those building blocks as well. And how did you become interested in the area of curriculum? That's a good that's a good question, John. I think maybe initially I, I was in St. Patrick's College in in the 1990s. And I remember right through the three years I was there, we were awaiting this revised 99, what became the 99 curriculum. So we were waiting through, I was there from 94 to 97. So I think I was nearly intrigued when it arrived in 99. It was a very big box of books. And I think I always wondered, well, where did this come from? Who wrote this? Who gets to determine what schools do, what teachers teach, what children learn and so on. So I was probably a little bit intrigued by that. And, and then I did some postgrad study in Maynooth um, between 99 and 2001. And the late Professor John Coulihan was one of my lecturers on that. And I 
think he instilled in me then a huge interest in understanding the historical origins or the gradual evolution to to the system we're in now. Uh, and I suppose the curriculum itself being such a central element of, uh, of the schooling system, such a, a, a huge construct in, in the work and life of schools, that became the focus. Uh, and I, I saw from early research that a number of scholars like Professor Coulihan himself, Professor Highland and many more, had looked at individual curricula. So, um, Professor Anya Highland had, had, had completed a lot of work on the 1900 curriculum. Other people had looked at other aspects. But what intrigued me was to look at it in the long term, looking at why, did, why it changed, when it changed, who changed it, who was involved, who had the power to determine um, what was in there, who was sitting at the table when these things were being written uh, and so on. So that's what, um, I suppose, inspired the topic looking at it in, in over the 100 year period. Uh, I had thought initially of, of bringing it right up to modern times, but uh, uh, I, I gave up on that and stopped in 1999 in the end. Yeah, I know you, you have to you have to make it manageable. It's interesting even what you were saying there about, you know, running out of the term of terms for revised and, you know, redeveloped and so on, because I was in in, in St. Pat's in the 1980s and at that stage, we were still referring to the 1971 curriculum as the new curriculum. So uh, it's uh, that that's interesting. But what what do you think that having a historical perspective on curriculum, uh, how can that inform our understanding of curriculum today? Do you think? You know, what are the benefits of the kind of approach that you are taking for for understanding today's curriculum? Yeah. Uh, maybe as a historian of education, I'd be biased on this and say there's, there's great value in having that. Uh, but I do think it, it is really valuable to understand where things are coming from, because when we look at the, the history of curriculum in Ireland, so many of the things that we take for granted, maybe the assumptions that we have around things are are firmly embedded within the culture of schools, within the structure of schools, whether it be in relation to the, the 1900 curriculum or church involvement, all the different elements like that are part of that historical legacy uh, for good and for bad uh, along the way. So I think understanding the why of particular the way in which the schools are structured and the way in which maybe subjects are there or not there or how they're construed or, or the content of them is really important. Um, I also think it gives us great perspective. Like I mentioned earlier on, we may feel that we're at the cutting edge now and everything in the past was historical or traditional or uh, was inferior. Uh, and I think we see a huge richness when we delve back into those documents, maybe from 100 years ago. Even the Stanley Letter of 1831 is probably one of the most progressive four pages you could you could um, write in terms of a vision for uh, a multi-denominational school system in, in a country that was very divided around religion at the time. It didn't work because of context, because of many other factors, but it's probably a vision that we are... We, we would like to even enact 200 years later. So I think it, it, it gives, a, gives us call, pause for thought. It enables us to be more humble maybe about where we're at uh, and to not disregard the past as, as something that was inferior um, to where we're at right now. Um, and also we, we see cycles. As I said, the 1900 curriculum was revisited really in 1971 after a period of time. So we learn maybe about things that worked in the past, maybe things that didn't work in the past, why they didn't work. So oftentimes when we come back to them, we come back with a, a better focus um, to them. It strikes me as interesting that in the 1920s, the 
government or the Department of Education at the time actually removed areas from the curriculum because uh, and and it may have been the wrong decision or it may have been an unpopular decision and so on but it's very unusual nowadays to remove things from the curriculum we're far more likely to be trying to include more in it so I think that's that's one interesting thing that you you learn from looking back and it, it was contentious Sean there's no doubt about that there were there's always people who have a view on different things like that and and there were lots of people who objected strongly to the maybe the removal of drawing or science or many subjects like that from the curriculum. But the other thing maybe I should have mentioned earlier on is context is key. So you're at various times, certain things become palatable or unpalatable for reasons that are often beyond education. So in the 1920s, there were very strong political, maybe religious um, influences on the curriculum that made certain things possible. In the 1970s, perhaps it was the wider, maybe social and economic um, discourses that were coming to bear in the curriculum. In the 1900, early 1900s, it was probably those more international factors that were influencing on it. Um, so certain things become possible at certain times, many times for, for very broad contextual reasons, as opposed to direct educational or pedagogical reasons. Yeah, and, and you've, you've mentioned that the context is key, but also I think implementation is key. And to what extent in Ireland does curriculum and curriculum development influence classroom practice? I think it certainly does, Sean. And there's no doubt but that it influences. But I think in the past, there was a, always a sense nearly that when the curriculum documents were written, the job was done. We had a curriculum. And I think that was a, a probably one of the, the, the greatest problems with many of the curricula throughout the 20th century was that all of the energy went into the writing of the document and then there was nearly a sigh of relief. We have a new curriculum, we have a revised curriculum, we have a redeveloped curriculum, whatever it might be called. And then there, it was sort of posted out to schools and then off with you now. And, and, and that was for enactment or implementation. I think we have a far greater understanding now of what a curriculum is, that it's the, the written part of it forms part of it. But as, as Ball would talk about policy as text and policy as discourse, the discourse is as influential and as powerful as the writing itself. So oftentimes what we see was that the curriculum itself became largely redundant. It, it sat on the shelf, the two orange books or the, the big box or whatever it might have been. And other influences like textbooks or uh, new initiatives and so on nearly displaced the curriculum in terms of that. So I do think we learned even from the 99 curriculum onwards that there was a need for that sustained support in terms of implementation. And, and that's where the difficult um, task is, that's where the resource intensive, that's where the cost comes with, not in the development, but in supporting, I suppose, the enactment of the vision of the curriculum through practice, through resourcing and so on. So, so what you're saying then is that, that the curriculum has more of a mediated impact on practice? Pre pretty much. And, and what I've seen in the, in the 20th century in terms of my own work is that oftentimes there's a, there's a nearly a a dance between policy and practice. So you often, because there are only three big revisions of the curriculum in a hundred year period, what you often see is that the curriculum policy itself is very progressive, very advanced, probably ahead of the practice and the thinking at the time. 
But over a long period of time, then nearly the practice and the thinking overtakes the policy, uh, maybe for a decade or two, and then the policy catches up. The policy becomes very progressive and probably outstrips where, where, where the general system is at in terms of thinking or resourcing it might, or whatever it might be. And then it catches up. So I think one of the things we're learning about curriculum is that rather than these very big, dramatic, revolutionary shifts every 30 or 40 or 50 years uh, um, between them, maybe what we need is a more gradual evolutionary curriculum that that evolves more in line with the reality of, of schools and of practice so that we, we do regular updates or maybe subject updates rather than the big bang, which we have been used to and, and which has been the practice in, internationally as well. I do think understanding curriculum as something more than the written document and as well looking at the the interface between schools and the NCCA and the department or whatever it might be that there needs to have that cyclical flow between schools and, and the policy makers so that there is a better connection between the policy and the practice and that the practice informs the policy not every 20 30 40 50 years but in a very gradual uh, um, way that that doesn't, I suppose, throw, throw the system into a little sense of flux every now and then, because it, handling the change of introducing a curriculum that maybe changes in philosophy and structure and content, uh, you know, is it, a very stressful time for schools, for teachers coming to grips with it. So maybe evolution rather than revolution might be a, a better approach. You've mentioned some of the things that influence curriculum change. In Ireland, in an Irish context, what have been the key things? Like, has it been a politician, say a minister coming in with strong ideas? Or is it what you were saying, kind of consulting what's going on internationally? Is it the economy? What, what would you say are the primary drivers in Ireland for, for curriculum change? I think the policy landscape for curriculum change is really complex. Um, some of the work uh, I've been involved in with the NCCA recently around the redeveloped curriculum, we have tried to map that policy landscape and it's a very busy space uh, and there are so many influences, so many people who want their voice heard. Curriculum is really at the very centre of education. So you have people from business, from religion, from international global influences, organizations like the EU, the OECD and so on. You have more local influences around it. But I think in terms of your question, Sean, it depends on the timing and the context. Um, so in the 1920s, as I mentioned, political influences were very, very large at the, at the origins of a new state. Perhaps right now, you know, in a more globalized world, the influences of maybe PISA to the OECD and other um, agencies like that come to the fore and have an influence on it then as well. So, but I think it's really the interface and the mingling of all of those is, is where the complexity arises because oftentimes policy tries to give a little bit to everyone so that uh, maybe everybody is equally unhappy in terms of the outcome, but everybody gets a bit, but nobody gets everything. And I think that's why we sometimes end up with with, with very complex policy documents, documents with probably lots of internal tensions within them because we're trying to, I suppose, give a nod or the policy developers are trying to keep everybody on board because everybody has a, a view, perhaps a legitimate in their own view, at least, in terms of what a curriculum should entail, what are the purposes of education, the big fundamental questions. You ask 100 people that question, everybody will have a slightly different answer. So I think... 
maybe the historian within me has a lot of sympathy and empathy with the, the curriculum developers or the policy developers because it is a very, very complex space they're trying to manage in terms of the competing voices trying to influence maybe what will, will be taught in schools for the next 20 or 30 years. And then they're also there to criticise it if they don't get everything they want in it. So it's... Uh, uh, absolutely. Uh, and uh, and I, I think, you know, sometimes policymakers are in a, in a space where they're never going to win for everybody because they can't please everybody. So, as I say, perhaps if everybody is equally displeased, then they, they've done a good job. Yeah. Um, if we move on from curriculum, a more recent area of your research has involved looking at immigrant internationally educated teachers. Can you tell me a little bit about that, uh, that, that research and what, that's, what, what, what that involves? Absolutely. And um, that's through my um, involvement in the Migrant Teacher Project, which which you're very familiar with, Sean. It's based there in, in Marino um, with, with Dr. Rory McDade and, and his colleagues as well. And I think myself and Rory have worked together nearly in terms of looking at it both historically and in the contemporary context. Um, so we, we have done some research. And I suppose what I was trying to look at was traditionally and historically, have there been barriers to certain members of society entering the teaching profession and, and what they might have been. And, and really, when I look back, there were there have always been barriers. Teaching has always been seen as a, a, a profession that is very influential on society uh, and, and has a huge impact. So right back to the penal laws, where if Catholics, it was forbidden to teach Catholics or for Catholics to be taught, there were barriers there because I think there was a realisation on behalf of the state of the power of education. And then with the national system of education kicking in in the 1830s, there were a lot of structures and systems put in place to control who became teachers in this national system. So you get your 12 practical rules for teachers, which I, personally I would say I, I might struggle to obey all of them. Um, but it was a way of, I suppose, characterising who it was that would occupy that very pivotal space of educating the youth of, of Ireland at that particular point in time. Uh, and those barriers, I suppose, those, those structural systems where you have, maybe you needed a letter from the local pastor or the local priest to be eligible for training, where inspectors had a very strong role in proposing people for training or not proposing people for training, very strong oversight from local managers in terms of the conduct of teachers, not just for their professional competence, but also their moral conduct and, and, and perceived moral conduct in a local community. So there, there were lots of checks and balances within the system so that both church and state had a strong role over who became a teacher and who, who was enabled to to remain as a teacher within the system. And there were many, many interesting cases where teachers were removed for, for perceived um, immoral activities or being morally dissolute or politically subversive or whatever the language might have been at the time. Uh, so those barriers have always been there. Uh, and I suppose maybe in the contemporary times when looking at the, um, the, the migrant teacher project, those, those barriers are, I suppose, hard barriers, maybe like the Irish language requirement and so on. But there are also many soft cultural barriers and um, that many people that uh, uh, traditionally have not been teachers in Ireland um, face in terms of just accessing the system, whether it be their, their uh, ethnic origins, whether it might be their social origins and so on. And there's probably a 
uh, a perception in Irish society of who who is and isn't a teacher or who who should or should not be a teacher. So the the migrant teacher project and even the turn to teaching project that's in uh, based in Maynooth University as well. Those are are very good uh, in terms of I suppose at least questioning those assumptions and, and, and moving uh, in, a, in a different direction as well. The other thing that was interesting that we looked at as part of that was, say, other professions where there have been shortages, say, like the medical profession, nursing and so on, like that a huge number of internationally qualified um, people work in those systems where it's a virtually a very, very low number of teachers have been qualified abroad or or come from outside the system then as well. So it's good to, I suppose, challenge that and and to see what can be done to to diversify teaching even further. And I think there is a a drive, certainly at a policy level now, to have a more diverse teaching force, which probably wouldn't have been there 20 years ago. Absolutely. I think that's coming at a political level uh, and and at a societal level and and so on. So it's really heartening to see that. But again, the the systems and the structures and the legacies and the culture, they take a long time to change. You you can't just flick a switch and think we would like this and and it changes. It's a a very complex space, but we're certainly moving in the right direction at, at a policy level around this. You're also interested in the area of team teaching. How do you understand that term? Yeah, um, myself and a colleague, Angela Rickard, have been involved in uh, team teaching projects really from about 2015 onwards at this stage. Um, How I understand it really is that you have two or more teachers coming together to maybe think through and plan to maybe teach together and importantly, to reflect on that experience of teaching and, and enactment um, with a view to, to better providing for the group of children, that very diverse group of learners in front of you. Um, that's sort of fundamentally how, how I would understand it. A very strong emphasis on not just the teaching itself, but also what comes before in terms of thinking through and what comes afterwards. I see probably a lot of benefits from team teaching in in the Irish context. Um, I suppose there is a tradition somewhat just from the very nature of the structure of our school day and school year that there are not many opportunities for teachers to to come together, to work together, to think through, to articulate. Um, A lot of teachers talk about that sense of isolation or insulation within their classrooms. So I see there's a really good opportunity to to not just talk about things around teaching, but talk to the very essence of what what teachers do within schools, uh, the methodologies perhaps that they use, the way they approach, the way they conceptualize and think think about teaching and learning. So I think it's a really powerful avenue for teachers to, to learn from one another, to share their expertise, to provide that community of practice within that, but also for, for students ultimately. Uh, we have diverse classrooms. We sometimes have very large classrooms. So the main provision for that within the Irish system at the moment is through the allocations for, for children with additional needs or special educational needs within the system. So there's been a, a gradual shift over the last number of years for more in-class support or team teaching rather than perhaps withdrawal or, or a better balance of, of, of those. Uh, and we've, we've seen, you know, lots of schools have made huge strides in that and, 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 and are beginning to appreciate the, the value for teachers 
and for students uh, around that. Now, the whole COVID situation has has impacted on that. Now, we're, we're working through a teaching council grant at the moment in terms of uh, working closely with two schools around their practices. Uh, and we, we uh, they're doing great work. But this year, it looks different again. So, But it doesn't mean it's, it, it has changed. They, they haven't... Uh, they just have to adapt even further again around physical distancing. And perhaps the enactment doesn't always happen with the two teachers in the same classroom, but a lot of the really rich work in terms of thinking through, conceptualizing the lesson, reflecting on and so on, all of that is still happening. And I think that's where a lot of the value lies um, for, for both teachers and for students. So is one of the partners then very likely to be the learning support teacher or a resource teacher in the school rather than two teachers? And, and I don't know whether you're thinking of it mostly at primary or post-primary, but say at primary, you know, I'm wondering, would it be two teachers bringing two classes together or is it usually the resource teacher and the learning support teacher? In the number of years we've been working, we have seen so many models. Um, but you're right. It's oftentimes the special education teacher alongside a classroom teacher. That can be the model. But the way we became involved was through school placement and because we would always have asked our student teachers to observe and then to assist and maybe team teach and so on. So we felt we needed to support our student teachers because it's a very complex, complex process. It's not just about plunking two teachers into the classroom and saying, teach away. There's huge issues around communication, around collaboration, perhaps around power dynamics, about who is the lead teacher, perhaps, who do students engage with, who do parents engage with. So there's a complex range of protocols and thinking through to do before you put the two teachers in the same classroom. Also to give them the, the tools to, to talk about this with one another. And if they feel in certain ways that maybe they're maybe undermined or if somebody is, is, is has a different philosophical approach that they have the tools to, to talk that through rather than it becoming something that that results in a worsening of relationships between between teachers as well so it can take place in a, in a wide variety of formats we we see sometimes where you language assistance uh, it might be that you said, Sean, that um, two teachers maybe bring two classes together in a different format then as well. But it's around being creative. Uh, certainly a lot of our student teachers who have been involved in, in projects over the years have been involved in being that second teacher or oftentimes being that lead teacher or, 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 or working out, a, I suppose, a style. There are so many different models and there's so many different ways of, of going about team teaching within the classroom. And do we know how widely team teaching is practiced in Ireland? I don't know if I have never seen anything statistical about it, um, but certainly the, the, from my own years in the inspectorate, it's certainly a model that's been more um, trialed more um, and more engaged with uh, around it. And I think a lot comes back to maybe school cultures and the, the willingness to engage and so on. Oftentimes you have a small group of teachers who are wishing to to become involved, and and they often become the the pioneers within the school, and they and and they become the champions of it within it. It's not to say I certainly wouldn't be shouting that team teaching is the the answer to everything. I I think it, it needs to be part of the toolkit in terms of meeting the needs of students. I would absolutely say sometimes maybe individual and withdrawal rather than in class support is the best 
pedagogical response to the needs of students. But but I think having that as part of a, a, of a toolkit of approaches is really powerful. Um, understanding why you're doing it, though, is critical. Uh, rather than just timetable to say, well, we're going to do team teaching because we have a teacher, doesn't work either. There needs to be an understanding as well, what is a second teacher going to do? What's the focus? What's the target? Uh, you know, how are children going to benefit as a result of it? And um, so there's a lot of work to be done before the two teachers arrive in the classroom. And, and you also need those very clear protocols so that there's an ongoing conversation around that relationship between the two teachers because every time you put two different teachers together or even the same teachers with a different class and a different subject and so on there's so many variables that affect that relationship so it seems to be something that happens more at a school level than at a at a policy level or anything at the moment would that be right right but what i'm always intrigued by in the policy documents is that right through from for the last two decades there are very few policy documents from the department that does not mention some form of collaborative teaching, team teaching, collective teaching, or whatever it might be. So we, we've been talking about this for a very long time, but really the, the enactment of it has been more or less left to schools. There hasn't been any particular drive or resourcing around it. So there are very few spare teachers hanging around in the staff room that haven't been assigned to classrooms and so on. So while the policy has, has spoken about it for a long period of time from the learning support guidelines onwards, and they were in, in the year 2000, we see uh, lots of the SEN policy between the department and the NCSE all talk about team teaching and in-class support. But that support at that school level for working out the mechanics of how that works and what are the big issues like your collaboration, the relationship building, the power dynamics, those effective dimensions have never been really explored at that national level. And that's the, the project that we were involved in with the PDST was with a view to exploring those dimensions of the enactment and seeing what were the complexities that, that teachers faced and, 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 and what were the, the key opportunities that were there. So we have developed a, a, a suite of resources around that uh, and we're in the process of, of recording some um, vox pops and video clips from teachers who have been involved in the project as well. So hopefully they'll be available this side of, um, of Christmas, um, hopefully. And are those resources available on your website? Some of the resources are available in either the Manus website, but mostly on the PDST website, because we were involved in a project with the PDST over about a period of three or four years. Um, so there's a toolkit there and the teaching council at work that we're involved in at the moment will result in new resources and they will be available on, on the Manute University website. We've already touched on early childhood education, but I suppose I wanted to ask you a little bit about what do you make of the present situation in relation to early childhood education in Ireland right now? Yeah, it's, a, it's certainly a very dynamic and moving space for early childhood education. Uh, when I think of early childhood education, I often think of the, the Oscar Wilde quote that um, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. And, and I think early childhood education was not talked about for a long period of time from the from the beginning of the of the state really in the 1920s right through it was very much on the fringes of the education system whereas for the last two decades or so there are lots of aspects that have been involved in early childhood education from from business and employment and labor force enactment through to children's rights and and, and lots of other different perspectives so We've had an explosion of policy, of legislation, of regulation, and, and so on, that is probably 
giving a sense of uh, that's perhaps a little overwhelming for, for the early childhood sector at the moment. Uh, but I think there's huge potential. I, I, I think they're, they're, all of these developments will will settle. You know, there will be an infrastructure that's there. Lots of has been invested in the physical infrastructure. And I think the next step of development needs to be in the professionals that work within the system and within the sector and that they are I suppose professionally rewarded for the work that they do, the qualifications that they have, the importance and the and the critical nature uh, of the interactions that they have with young children every day. So, I maybe it's the historian within me that I, I'm very optimistic. I'm very hopeful because I see that the early childhood sector has made strides in the last two decades that it probably took the primary sector a hundred years to to get to, or maybe post primary uh, an equal period of time. So. The people who are working within the system now, while they feel overwhelmed, they are they are the pioneers. They are the the the, the foundations of what will be a very um, what already is, but will certainly be a very vibrant and appreciated and remunerated sector into the future. So I I, I see huge growth, huge development, and, and huge potential within that system. I think it'll be interesting to see if it actually comes under the auspices of the state, because it's ironic in a way that sometimes it's the the early years of our lives and the closing years of our lives where we're put, pushed into the private sector for nursing homes and for because early childhood education is largely a private activity. So I think that will be an interesting test to see if that happens. Absolutely. And, and the state is probably dipped its toe in the water now with the free preschool year or years um, or, or the ETCHI scheme, but and now the, the new national plan as well. Uh, and I suppose at the moment, because lim- resources are limited, many would argue perhaps that that's not a, a positive influence in some ways because it is it has um, maybe taken away some of the autonomy from the sector that have previously enjoyed then as well. But I, I think, you know, in terms of the, the provision at the moment, there's a, there's a lot of scope for the state to, if it is to be involved, that it needs to be more flahulok um, or the resourcing needs to match uh, the needs of the sector. And I think the, the beginning of that happened in the, the early years of the, the economic downturn, really from 2010 onwards and so on. So I think there one of the, the the key issues really is funding within that sector because when you look at the relative amount of money that the state invests in early childhood relative to the other levels of the education system, I think then you see where the big block is and a lot of it is down to resourcing. But as the, as the sector develops, as it becomes increasingly professionalizes further and so on like that, the demand is going to force the state, I think, to to, to invest further within that system. It's just over two years, Tom, since the passing of Professor John Coulihan, a historian of education who, as you said, taught you in, in Maynooth University. You have co-edited a book celebrating his work. As you look back on his work today, how do you assess his legacy in Irish education? I think um, Professor Coulihan had, had a really, really strong influence on, on the entire system from early childhood right through to adult education. And, and I know when we were, we had the colloquium back in 2017 and, and John attended that, um, we had huge difficulty trying to narrow down the themes um, for the evening because his work influenced so many sectors of the system from policy, from practice, from research, also the international dimension with his work in the OECD and so on like that. So that was one of the huge issues trying to to focus in, okay, what will we celebrate 
in one evening and um, that we had there then as well. Um, so I think all of those, there's no element and there's no policy within the education system, certainly given his work in the 1990s from the green paper to the white paper, from the convention to early childhood white paper to the adult, um, uh, adult education white paper in 2000, all of those uh, uh, had John's influence uh, within them. It was to think of one of the lasting legacies though, I think John by his very nature was a, he was a, a bridge builder. He, he, was he wanted to make connections. He wanted to build partnership and consensus among the various stakeholders that were there. And I think his, his role in the, the 1980s, uh, 1990s into the 2000s were, were instrumental in, in the partnership-based element of, of education we have in Ireland, even within our 1998 Education Act, the, the necessity for consultation with the education partners when there's going to be a policy change, I think is one of his lasting influences as well. So I think that that attempts, and of course, it's not always uh, easy to achieve, but looking for partnership, consensus and, and, and coming together in order to develop policy rather than maybe what you, you even mentioned earlier on, Sean, maybe a politician coming in and making a radical change. We don't see that nature of policy development in Ireland. It is more consultative. It is more developmental. And I think that I would see as one of, of, of John's lasting legacies because that not only is there in our culture, but it's there in our legislation from 1998 as well. Yeah, I've interviewed him a few times on this programme and one of the things that surprised me, and I only found this out quite late, that he had a real interest in the visual arts. Absolutely, yeah. I was a member of the ARC uh, and, and so on, and, and, and even in the wider arts as well. Yeah, there were so many uh, dimensions to his work and, and to his interests and so on. Uh, and and we in, in the proceedings that we published after that colloquium back in 2017, we tried to get a range of people to who to speak to those interests. And I think people present on the night might have been aware of one or two of his influences, but would have been surprised that he was so influential in areas like the arts, maybe like early childhood education uh, and so on, maybe came as a, a surprise to some. A central part, Tom, of the experience for pre-service teachers in Ireland is their experience of school placement, or what used to be called teaching practice. And although children and even student teachers themselves often refer to visits of the inspector, the role is different to that of inspector. It's title change from supervisor to placement tutor, and you have studied how this change in terminology has changed perceptions of the role among people who visit and provide feedback to student teachers. Can you tell me a little bit about what you found in that study? Yeah, that, that was a study myself and Dr. Rose Dolan from, from Maynooth University were involved in back in around the transition from moving from the name of supervisor to placement tutor. And we, we interviewed and engaged with a, a number of uh, of what are now called placement tutors who are transitioning in that role. Uh, and I suppose what, what really struck us, it nearly comes back to a question you asked earlier, Sean, about uh, the policy and the practice. What, when we spoke to those tutors, they felt that they were already tutors rather than supervisors, that they had already begun over a long period of time to mentor, to be you know, to give formative um, feedback and, and, and those particular elements have become core to their role. So what we found in the research really was that while the teaching counselling policy was now talking about this, the practice had, had become embedded in the traditional supervisors over a period of time. And when we unpack that further, we found through speaking to those tutors that 
their opportunities to engage with one another as a, as a learning community. Um, in Maynooth University to this very day, we still have monthly meetings of all placement tutors where they discuss their practice, they talk about the challenges, they talk about the tensions when they're assessing and, and supporting and, and all the different things like that. They said that by being part of those communities of practice within Maynooth, it had, I suppose, enabled them or prompted them to move in that direction much earlier than the policy had required them to do so. As I recall, the other interesting thing that came out of that research was that depending on how many years they had been a placement tutor, they had a different perception of their role. So people who had just left teaching, perhaps, and come into the role of placement tutor were quite focused on their subject and, and, and the expertise that they had in that. Whereas people who had been maybe in it a longer period of time, some of them maybe eight or 10 years, had nearly lost the identity with their subject only. And this is at a post-primary level I'm speaking. And they had broadened their view to look at the needs of students and some of them even to the needs of the wider system and the role that they had in quality assuring the teachers of the future and so on. So it was very interesting to look at the various ways in which they understood their role also based on their identity and, and the time that they had spent undertaking this role. So it just shows as well that it's not just a simple term, you know, that the, the, the language we use, it, you need to be very careful about it because it does it does influence how we how we see things. It, it does. Absolutely. I think the language is central, but it's nearly something I've mentioned earlier on is that policy is text. It's easy to change the word, um, whatever it might be. And we have, we have some wonderful policies with lovely words for the last 200 years in Ireland. But it's really the discourse, what informs this? And if it doesn't, if the policy as text does not resonate with the people who are reading it or who are engaging or are or, or, or tasked with enacting it, it will not happen. So it's really important that those conversations feed into the policy, but there's an opportunity then to unpack the, the text within a policy to see what does it mean for me as a teacher, as a placement tutor, whatever it might be. So the, the written text is, is the easy bit. Uh, and maybe some of the some of what was happening there was the terminology catching up with the reality the, or the practice, because people were already, as you said, acting as tutors. You know, so. Absolutely, Sean. And I think that's what happens regularly in policy. It, it is forced to catch up with the, the evolution in thinking uh, and, and, and the evolution in practices along the way. So it is that game of, of, uh, of catch up all the way along. And then eventually um, the practice will, will, over, will outrun it again. We see in the last few weeks, we've had a new publication of CAME, the, the new standards, and we see even new language again around, say, cooperating teachers and so on like that. So there is a continuous evolution in these things. Tom, we're coming near the end. So I just have a few general questions that I put to every guest on the, on the podcast. And the first one is, what is school for or what are schools for? That's a hard one to leave until the end, Sean. I suppose when I think of a school, I think of a physical structure. I see. I think of a building. And so if, if you're asking what are schools for, I, I think the schools provide a context. They provide a space for people and, and, and those people being teachers and educators or, or early childhood professionals to come together with students um, and in, I suppose, provide that space, provide that context for interaction, for discussion, for thinking, for questioning and so on. So I, I think it's, it's that space where, where people come together to, to learn. Is there a teacher who had a significant impact on you? 
Yeah, I, I must say I've, I've probably been quite fortunate in that the vast majority of teachers I've had were were excellent, really influential and, and, and really inspirational. But if I was to think of one, I would think of the principal of my primary school, which was a small rural school in Mayo um, in, in whatever, in the 1980s. Um, and looking back, he would now maybe be considered a traditional teacher, um, but he was hugely inspirational in terms of his approach to education, his belief in the power of education. And, and we certainly left primary school. He, he was my teacher for fifth and sixth class. Um, his name is Mr. Gavin. He's happily retired um, right now. Um, but he, he, he had a huge influence in my appreciation of education and, and the transformational power of education um, for people who, who were living in, in rural Mayo in, in, in that point in time then. He was hugely um, ambitious in terms of what, it, what education could do for us. Um, so yeah, I, I certainly left primary school wanting to become a teacher and, and I never really wavered, I never really deviated from that. From, I made up my mind at that point in time that, that that's what I wanted to do after school. So he actually left that impact on you at that early age? Absolutely. And yeah, I, and I, I would have been aware of that impact at, at that point in time. Yeah, it was a, a very transformational. Um, and, and as I say, in, in modern terms, he could be seen as a very traditional teacher. It was certainly a very strong emphasis on knowledge and content and so on, but taught in a, in a very inspiring way um, as well. Like we have a huge appreciation for local history, for, for many of the dimensions that, that, that we might have not have been exposed to otherwise. What is your vision of an educated person? There's so many ways you could answer that, Sean. Uh, for me, I suppose I think of somebody who, who can see things in a very broad way, um, maybe in the round, um, be because more and more I think we, we, we fall into becoming very entrenched in our views and, and having a very singular view of things. So for me, an educated person can step back, hold a view, make an argument, all of those particular things, but also understand the perspective of, of others, have the capacity to maybe critique evidence and to critique you know, other perspectives, not maybe deviate from where they're at, but maybe just have that empathetic understanding that maybe not everybody understands it this way. There are other views and, and perspectives. So that capacity, I think, uh, for me, is a hallmark of, of an educated person. Not that they agree with everything that they see, but they have the capacity to understand the viewpoint of others. Who or what inspires you? Probably the, the, the people I teach, perhaps, or, or the people I engage with while teaching. And whether that was a, maybe a, a five-year-old or, or now mostly 25-year-olds on, on PMEs and, and on the various programmes, I'm forever enthused and I'm forever humbled by their, their approach to life, their ethical stance on things, the, the new vision, the new clarity to bring to things. So you oftentimes go in with a thinking you're bringing knowledge or you're bringing insights to them. And, but the, it's a rare hour that you spend in the company of a, of a group of students at whatever age that you don't probably learn as, more, as much, if not more, than what you impart with them. So I, I think that, that you learn so much in those interactions and interfaces. And I think perhaps the, the move online has has made that challenging in terms of teaching now because it's a it's a more difficult um, 
engagement or interaction to simulate on a in a virtual or on an online space like that. So I must say, for one, I, I look forward to being back in a classroom with groups of students. But while, while you can manage so much through Teams or Zoom or whatever it might be, uh, I think the the dialogue and the interaction you could, you get in a live environment um, is it's impossible to replicate. There's a lot, a lot of people thinking that, all right. And finally, Tom, have you a favourite writer, book or blog about education? I think one, of the, one of the people I, I listen, uh, or, or, or listen and, and read some of is Gert Biesta. Um, and Gert is part-time based in Maynooth University um, right now. So we're very fortunate to be part of um, research groups uh, with him. So we get to hear him speak a, a lot. But I find his he is very clear and I suppose challenging insights around the education system. He he challenges those accepted wisdoms within the education system in a very accessible, in a very humble way. Um, But it's rare that you read something uh, that Gert has written, even something short, or you you engage with Gert, that you don't come away with lots and lots of questions um, from that. So I, I, I like the I, don't, I won't say simplicity of his writing because it's anything but simple, but it's a very accessible form of writing that really gets us to question the purposes of education, the role of the teacher, the, the wider influences on, on that, um, and, 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 and to, I suppose, really get you to rethink maybe some of those taken for granted assumptions that, that become embedded within us all, perhaps, um, when you're part of an education system. So, And is there any particular book or article that you're thinking of when you say that, that might be accessible for teachers? Would be well, one of the ones, um, I think it's a 2015 article, Was a, um, he wrote around the, the power of seduction of, uh, I suppose, global numbers. And I think it, it's largely around PISA and some of those metrics that they're very compelling and they're, they can be presented in a very simplistic way that you think, you know, by looking at this one table, you understand the quality of education across the world. But it's to unpack what is that, what is that saying? What evidence is informing this? What do you really know having looked at this? Um, so that's, um, uh, it, the word seduction I know is in the title, but it, it's the seduction of um, global influences or something like that. It's a 2015 article. Um, and that's something I read there recently. And and while I would have held a similar view, he crystallised that view um, greatly for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I would have had a similar experience because I, I interviewed him again on the on the podcast and he would have, he was very strong on how the focus on learning, when you hear such a strong focus on learning, how it actually is devaluing the focus on teaching and, yeah. and how that has actually become very important for us now, especially with technology becoming more important, you know, and more prominent in education. Absolutely. And I know um, he has a number of articles and I think his, his book, The Beautiful Risk of Education, which is a, a lovely read, talks about that learnification. And, and we do see, even if we analyse our own policy documents now, we see a lot more mention of learners rather than students and so on. And and, and I think he, he raises very good points about the positionality of the teacher in that equation or in that interaction. You know, what does the teacher bring to the table? Uh, and we certainly want to accentuate the, the value and, and the, the criticality of the teacher and what she or he brings to, to, to the, that educational experience is, is pivotal. And that was Maynooth University historian of education, Dr. Tom Walsh, speaking to me about Gert Biesta's book, The Beautiful Risk of Education. Remember, you can listen back to this podcast and over 400 previous episodes of Inside Education by going to my website, seandelaney.com and clicking on the Podcasts tab.
If you liked this podcast, please leave a comment and a review of it on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts, because that helps other people find out about the podcast. You can follow me on Twitter, where I use the handle at InsideEd. You can write with comments or suggestions to InsideEducationPodcast at Yahoo.com. My book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, would make a great present for any new teacher you know, and it is now available as an audiobook. Until the next time, this is Sean Delaney saying goodbye. Thank you for listening.